In this episode, we are delighted to welcome Malcolm Dixon, who is a curator, writer and organiser, and is a director of Street Level Photoworks, and Marcus Jack, a freelance curator, writer and print designer based in Glasgow. Malcolm and Marcus will be talking with Katie Bruce, producer-curator from GOMA, as part of the GOMA at 25 series celebrating the work of the Gallery of Modern Art on its 25th anniversary. Welcome to this Glasgow Museum's podcast, which is part of a series of conversations with artists, curators, partners and lovely human beings that we've worked with over the last 25 years for GOMA at 25. This series has been generously supported by Art Fund and the Respond and Reimagine Fund. My name is Katie Bruce. I'm one of the curators at GOMA and I'm currently at home on a Zoom call with the director of Street Level Photoworks, Malcolm Dixon, and curator and writer, Marcus Jack. Would you both like to introduce yourselves and say where you are? I'll start first with you, Malcolm. Okay, well, as you say, Katie, yes, I'm a director of Street Level Photoworks. Have been for quite some time, the whole duration, I think, of Gallery of Modern Art's life. I think I've been director of Street Level so quite some time. Young man back in those days. So uh, independently, I've curated various exhibitions and shows, one of which was with Goma, occasionally write, and yeah, organise things in other places. Thanks, Malcolm. Marcus? Yeah, thanks, Katie. My name is Marcus Jack. I'm a writer, art historian, curator, list of other things. I have just finished a PhD looking at the history of artists moving image in Scotland since 1970. And out with that, I do a bit of editorial work as the founder of Dowser, which is a quarterly publication series on the same field. And I also run a small organisation called Transit Arts, which does programming and publishing projects also related to to film and video practices. Brilliant, thanks both. And I invited you for this podcast primarily to chat a little bit about moving image in Glasgow Museum's collection and the history of that, but also documentary photography. And yeah, Marcus, I know I've given you a very brief introduction because I knew you had a plethora of things. And Malcolm, likewise, it's not just director of street level photographs, there's a lot in there. So yeah, I'll start by going back with you both, if that's okay. And Marcus, this may or may not be relevant to you. Um, but what were you doing in 1996 when we opened and were you aware of Gomer opening? 1996. It was the year of visual arts, uh, I recall, in the city of Glasgow. There was a lot going on. I was several months into my post at street level and just getting to grips with constructing a new programme. I'd taken a lot of the interest that I previously had into street level at that time, which was roundabout film, video, new media, magazines and, and such like. But photography aligned very well with my broad interests, I suppose. I don't recall the specific launch of GOMA itself. I would have been aware of it at the time, but I don't quite recall it. I was aware of it, but I don't remember being at the reception or involved in any celebrations, as far as I recall. The scene in Glasgow in 1996 was, we could say, slightly smaller than it is now in terms of people tended to know one another a bit better in terms of the activities. So I was in contact with the curators at the Gallery Modern Art, Anne Barlow and Julia Fenby. And in 1996, we organised 
an exhibition at street level by Pedro Meyer called Truths and Fictions. Pedro's a Latin American artist, Mexican origin, pioneer of digital imaging at the time. I mean, this was early days of digital imaging and Photoshop and all the rest. So Pedro had heard talk at a conference in Inverness, which was connected to Photofish International Festival of Photography, and was very impressed by it. So I invited him to come to Glasgow, which was a bit of a the exhibition was put together by impressions. But anyway, we got them to Glasgow. So there's a lot of excitement around the potentiality of the digital at the time. And Pedro was making terrific work. And it did, it kind of questions the veracity of documentary photography, which is very interesting in terms of connecting the past to the present and to different kind of subject matters and, you know, and sandwiching them together in a very kind of elegant way. But there was a couple of workshops that we'd programmed and we thought, like, let's get Pedro to Glasgow. I had this idea of doing artist education weeks, whereby we would have the artists around uh, at the time, which isn't such an unusual thing to request but it felt quite innovative at the time we'll get them involved doing talks we'll get them to connect to different groups at that time street level and indeed goma were very much involved in the participatory side of art so we got pedro to do a keynote lecture at the friday morning sofa lectures at glasgow school of art we had scheduled him to undertake a talk at the gallery of modern art followed by two sets of workshops unfortunately pedro had to go back to the states and was not able to deliver those workshops himself but the workshops did indeed go ahead and I think we may have undertaken that with the assistance of the artist Lindsay Perth. Would that have been in the fire gallery then? It was in the fire gallery. The basement. Yes. Yeah, that yes. was set up for digital. Yeah. yeah. So the Gallery of Modern Art was one of the places that had the means to be able to do such things in terms of the technology. It's not something that we had at that time in 1996, the computers that were needed. It was two half-day workshops, and one was with Castle Milk Pensioners Action Group, and the other was 16 to 18-year-old students. If I may just read the communication that I sent to Pedro at the time, because I think it kind of places us as to where we were at that time, and I faxed Pedro to say that members of these workshops will be unfamiliar with digital imaging techniques applied to photography or with the internet. We can ask some of them to bring photographs of significance with them if you think this is appropriate. Otherwise, we can comprise of simplified points from the day previous. Both groups will not have much affinity with contemporary art but will be aware of new types of photographic practice. They will, however, be interested in what you have to say. The school students are mostly interested in photography, but a couple are doing general visual art. They are not yet at art school, but most will hope to do so within the next two years. It's very unlikely that any of them has a focus on what they might want to do yet. So that, I just thought that was kind of quite an interesting communication, and mostly all the communication was done through facts at the time, in actual fact. There was a second talk that was scheduled as well, which was aimed at art school students. Just another footnote to all of this. Pedro had requested, if not demanded, that he was put up in a hotel that had internet access for him to do his emails. There was no hotel in Glasgow at the time who provided that, except the Brunswick Hotel. And it was all dial-up access at the time, right? 
And this really infuriated Pedro. But there was five computers that were available in the Gallery of Modern Art at the time. And that also involved setting up a web page, I seem to recall. There's no photographic documentation of those workshops that I have there ever is. There the is. I found some slides at yeah. Glasgow Museum's Resource Centre. So I think, Marcus, did I send you one of them? Because yeah. we were trying it, to work out. I've, I think I've seen a group of pensioners huddled around a big beige monitor. That sounds about right. right. Okay. I can't recall how the connection was made to Castle Mill Pensioners Action Group, but I quite like that idea of working with that group and then as a group of young people as well. No, I'll be able to send you that through. But it's exciting to know that because I'd found that slide and wasn't sure where the workshop had come from. So that's a really nice way of understanding that street level were working in partnership with GOMA through Julia really quite early on when yeah. it opened. Yeah. That's right. There was another event in 1996 in the Fire Gallery and in one of the spaces up the stairs. I wasn't directly involved in it, but colleagues of mine through New Visions Festival were. That was the, the third uh, New Visions Festival. Marcus is, knows something of the history of that now through your research, Marcus. Mm -hmm. But there was a programme of works that were curated that must have been projected down in the fire gallery at the time as part of the 96 New Visions Festival. And there was a CD-ROM gallery, artists working with new technologies, and that included Matthew Fuller and Scanner. That aspect was curated by Robert King, and I got in contact with him last night about that, and he reminded me of some of the details of that actual programme. Now, that doesn't feel as far back as the Pedro Mayer show. But again, 1996, it's, it's not kind of yesterday. So CD-ROMs were all really new as well, that whole technology. Yeah, and I don't have a note of that exhibition in my archive, so that'd be really, really good. There was definitely a CD-ROM project by Patricia Piccinini, who's based in Australia these days, called the Genetic Manipulation Simulator, that I have a right. note from from 1997. Right, but it's okay. really interesting to sort of think about all of these exhibitions that were going on at the time, because the perception was definitely around. We had a lot of painting and it was the Glasgow Boys and Beryl Cook that made all the publications or all the print that people were rallying against. But actually, there was quite a lot of new technologies being explored in the gallery at that time. Yeah. I think people are I'm definitely less aware of. Sorry, Mark. Yeah, I just sure for that um for the cd gallery so i can tell you a bit about it here ran from the 12th to the 19th of october 1996 cd rom gallery including works by peter gabriel as in the singer 100 minutes of video over 30 minutes of audio hundreds of full color still images on cd there were works by a troy innocent shuya zhang and ein suternde neubatten so an international selection some of it I guess could be considered art. Some of it is just stuff on CDs, which is nice. It kind of speaks to the, those definitions hadn't really hardened up yet. It was just kind of CD media, which is really interesting. Yeah. There's another one called Of Monsters and Miracles, which included footage of Yuri Geller, Jenny Randalls and other magicians about UFOs and the Roswell UFO case. A mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. I think at that time, you know, it was still such a rarity. The idea of thematic groupings or of curating this material didn't serve a purpose yet. It was kind of just CD is the category, which is interesting. Yeah, and, uh, and Robert says there were five Macs, probably performer multimedia models. 
set up to run the CD-ROMs and pre-installed programs. There was also a few machines set up with for internet access with bookmarks for a few fledgling sound art projects and net art forums and artist sites. So that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'll need to definitely get some of that material back then for our archives. I don't think I have got anything on that. Yeah, it's interesting. So at the same time, I just found another brochure from that New Visions Festival. So at the the same time as the CD gallery was running, there was film video projection happening. People like Cordelia Swan, Maria Clanaris and Katerina Tomodaki. Who else have we got? Yeah, a whole Nelson Hendricks, Paul Cameron, a kind of real mix of, you know, people we would know as artists, filmmakers, people from Glasgow, people working internationally, and then people who are doing experiments in the new media. So there is a sense there that these things hadn't calcified yet. There was an artists and new technologies forum in the middle of that exhibition run, which included pictorial heroes, which is Doug Aubrey and Alan Robertson, um, video makers from Glasgow. So I guess th- there's a sense that at this time it was just containing a bit of a, a hodgepodge. But yeah, yeah, that definitely belies the sort of narrative we have about Goma as being this reactionary space headed by someone who thought they knew what the proper way to approach art was. It- it's interesting for sure. I guess I could say in 1996, what I was doing. I think it was a big year for yo-yos. I definitely remember that. I think we were learning the 10 times table. I would have been early primary school. So my consciousness of the self or of art or of anything out with the school environment was probably pretty remediary. But I definitely remember school trips to the St Mungo's Museum for sure, where we got taught about sectarianism. And I think we went to Goma too, but that's a blur. I can't remember. So what was your first encounter that you remember then from Goma? It may not have been your first, but... Yeah, the consciousness came after the visit, I think, for sure. Um, But I was looking back over the archive, and one thing that I really do remember was Jim Lambie's show, which was 2008, so it doesn't feel like that long ago. But that was with the, the huge black and white floor tape piece. And I remember quite definitely there was a sculpture in the middle of the room that was chairs and handbags covered in bits of mirror. Which is now in our collection. Yeah, yeah. I think that that sticks in the head because it was so graphic. It's got a very certain image. But yeah, I didn't go to art school either. So actually my awareness of curatorial work or of galleries came a little later. But I always think Goma was a really useful place to broker those relations. So as someone outside of, you know, the artist-led scene or the ecologies that develop around art school, Goma was a place where I could go and touch on just the sort of start of things that would germinate into a bigger interest for me. One memory that is really strong was when it was hosting the British Art Show 7. Um, which was 2011. And I remember very vividly seeing Elizabeth Price's user group disco. I'd probably seen video before, but for me, that was like, wow, this is a powerful work. You know, it's, it's got a really throbbing base and it's quite intense and very dark. It essentially comprises objects rotating on screen in black and white that are quite domestic, everyday objects, things like lemon juicers or, or something like that with text on screen which is describing ideas of ontology and objecthood and categories and I think that might be some like human league or something in the soundtrack I can't remember it's been uh-huh. a while aha yeah okay it definitely had yeah. that sort of 80s vibe but I think it was made slightly more menacing maybe it had some reverb on it or something so that's a very strong memory and I also remember from that show but not at Goma at the CCA was the Autolith Group's Hydra Decapita which is about Black Atlantic and the sort of myth of Drexia which is the idea 
established by this techno duo from Detroit, Drexia, who created their own mythology around them being the antecedents of slaves who were thrown overboard in the transatlantic slave trade. And so they've built a kind of mythology around their music about that and in the Autolith group video muses on that theme. So those two are poles for me. Like that, I think that's when I started to understand video as a creative medium, which seems you know, quite late in my own development, but for sure it was definitely things like the British Art Show and things like Goma, which were able to broker that because they hold the gate between a public and an art consciousness, which I think there's something to be said about that broad audience and the way that that can transmute people into new fields. So that, that was really interesting. And another thing around that time, maybe later, Carla Black in the main gallery was a very huge thing for me. I think it never... 2012. 2012's just after. I think that was GI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the most stuff I've ever seen in a gallery space. And I was just like, whoa, this is a lot of stuff. It's stank of like sawdust and all this material. I had so many questions. I've got a very kind of analytical, logistical brain, and I just want to know how things are made. And I remember thinking, how did they get this in? Where did it go? What did they do with all this sawdust? Which was really interesting. And then I went on to do a master's after my undergrad in 2015 and I remember we got to visit the museum's resources centre and speak to Stephanie de Romer who's uh yeah she's a 3D sculpture yeah. conservator yeah and I remember I had so many questions about how do you conserve contemporary art or conceptual art and and I think she was talking about a color black that might be in the collection or, or maybe it was another work but had this very specific set of instructions as to how to make work and then you know like jars of the material whether it's like the powder paint or the plaster or the sawdust and yeah really fascinating to me about uh, how these things come into the space so I guess that analytical brain is what drove me into the art world and and Goma was a big part of that I think is this way to link a very public audience to quite a specialist and complex ideas so for me that's the kind of the function that it served anyway that's always been at the heart of it we're part of Glasgow museums so you know whenever we put proposals forward for exhibitions one of the questions we get asked is about have we thought about the audiences for this how would this might appeal to audiences that we know that visit Goma because they have always been really broad and when I started out in 2002 they were 60% local and then 40% from outside of the city or beyond and actually our audiences around about then were maybe 350-400,000 in the last few years pre-COVID they'd increased to around about 600,000 and the numbers had actually flipped in that it was 40% local and 60% outside the city so you're always aware the programming that we're doing and how that relates to the people that come in we're kind of sometimes that first toe in the contemporary art for a lot of people so and and, and how that operates and, and works is something we think about with our programming and, and Julian did from the start with the premise behind Goma he wanted to show art made by artists living in our time or living artists that we relate to our lives and experiences, which I guess is still at the core of what we do. We maybe show works by different artists than he had in mind at that time, Um, but it's still a big consideration about how it relates to our lives these days. You know, Malcolm, you talked about working with our curators back in 1996, but you also having a conversation about photography because there was a, a lot of documentary photography acquired at the time for the collection for Goma opening so were you in conversation about photography with the curators? 
1996 or around about then? I don't recall any specific conversations regarding the photographic collection. I mean, I have to say it wasn't until some time later that it became known to me that there was quite a collection of photography within Glasgow Museum's collection. And I think that happened through being aware and being involved in organising things to do with Joe Spence or, or Peter Kennard. I wasn't aware of any big expositions of the photographic collection, but I never investigated either but in the same measure. So I can't recall anything specific in that respect, Katie, I'm afraid. That, that's okay. I mean, I suppose we've had conversations since about uh, Nick Danzinger and Sebastian Salgado as well. The Joe Spence works are particularly important. We've got one work, Metamorphosis, that came into the collection. And there's some, you know, going back to when you were talking about faxes and communications, we've got faxes and memos and letters in the archive between Julian Spaulding and other curators like Jean Walsh, I think, and Joe Spence talking about acquiring her work for the collection. Julian showed it in his version of the British art show that was in the McClellan Galleries in 1993 and so started a conversation with Joe after then about work coming in for the opening of Goma, which I don't think it happened for the opening because she was quite ill at the time and maybe later stuff was with Terry who was managing her estate for it to come in at a later date. Both Ben and myself have worked with the collection works on Joe Spence. And I think also Kate Davis showed Metamorphosis as part of her solo show in 2012 when she worked with works from the collection to inform her, her new commissions with us as well. So it was the time when Ben Harmon, who's now at Stills, of course, another photography gallery in Edinburgh, did do an interview with Terry Dennett downstairs in the fire gallery, which does exist on video, talking about Joe Spence's work. I should probably try and get you a copy of that that would be amazing yeah maybe at the occasion of the joe spence show which was at street level because we got terry up and i think he undertook a talk at goma so we're always quite keen to join the dots of those things that existed connecting to the venues and the potential of the amplification roundabout certain practices that could be done by different venues joining up and that's demonstrated by new visions with what we we're talking about that took place all over. It's ongoing and we're still acquiring photography which is really exciting so there's recent works like Maud Souter we've yeah. just acquired works by her which I know is another estate that you've worked quite closely with. So a Jammu had first undertaken a residency through uh, the Gallery of Modern Art. Yeah. That was part of your annual thematic exhibition. It was part of the Shout programme. And That's where I first came across a Jammu in actual fact, and it was subsequent to that that he then did a residency through us. Then through that, there was the connection to Maud Salter, which I already had been aware of because Maud had exhibitions at street level before I joined there was quite a strong connection there already but it so happened that Ajamu and Deborah Cherry were kind of working independently as curators of one another with this great interest in the very important curatorial work and artworks that Maud Sulder had made so that's how that kind of evolved with Autograph the Association of Black Photographers in London and ourselves being involved and maybe after a couple of years that materialised into the exhibition that then happened 
at street level and then went to impressions in Bradford. But I think it's very important that the work of an artist, a writer and a commentator such as Maud Salter is in a civic collection such as Glasgow's. I think that's quite an important move. And I think through the process of that, I think what's really interesting is, is that artworks that are in a collection such as that can resurface within different contexts connect to a new generation of people and new readings can be undertaken of the work that was never anticipated, obviously, at the time of its conception. And I think that goes across probably all, all artworks that is contained within there. So, yeah, I think it's very exciting. We also collected plantations. So I think we're the first collection to acquire a video work. Um, it's a lesser known aspect of her yeah. practice, but yeah. for us, it felt really appropriate and adds to a growing collection of moving image works that we have, which I, I don't think as many people know about. Because I know, Marcus, when you were writing your PhD, you got in touch with me to ask about what works we had in the collection. Yeah, yeah. No, I've done a, a lot of analysis about this. Yeah, and it's interesting what you say about Maud. I know that through Tiffany Boyle has told me this, near the end of her life, she started billing herself as a filmmaker on, on her business cards. So it was a direction that she was starting to pursue, sadly curtailed. But Plantation is definitely the sort of finished standout video in, in that respect. But I know that there were intentions for screenplays and things like that. But in terms of the picture of Goma and of Scotland as a whole, yeah, the prognosis is interesting. It's not necessarily truly healthy. By point of comparison, I guess we can talk about the history of these things. So the, the first film or video work collected by an art collection in Scotland wasn't until 1994, and that was the Scottish Arts Council collection, which bought Daniel Weave's video, Obsessive Becoming. After that, it was quite a few years, and the Scottish Arts Council collection no longer exists. It was dispersed over many years, and I don't know where that work now exists. But for the National Galleries in Edinburgh, they didn't collect a film or video work until 1998, Smith Stewart's Breathing Space. And as a point of comparison, Tate bought their first video from Gilbert and George in 1972. So you're talking about like a quarter century gap in provision between Scotland and our closest neighbour. And then Goma was 2003 with Roddy Buchanan's Gobstopper, which had won the Bex Futures Prize three years earlier. So institutions can be slow moving beasts. There's definitely a lag there between production and collection, but these things are being remedied. The pace of that is exponential too. So I think in film and video being collecting now at a reasonable rate, but to put figures on this, I can just pull this from my thesis. For NGS at National Galleries Scotland, they hold 6,000 works in their modern and contemporary collection. Only 60 of those are moving image, so that's about 1%, with another 11 co-owned with Tate. Glasgow Museums, by comparison, has 2,000-ish art objects dating from 1960 to present, which would be the sort of period we can talk about moving image, of which a bit over 40 of those are film or video, which is 2%-ish. And when we communicated about this, which is a couple of years ago now, so this may have changed, that represented 27 artists or artist duos, of which 18 were Scotland-based, with similar figures in kind of other collections. And amongst the smaller collections in Scotland, these figures are even smaller, if you want to talk about the sort of civic collections of Dundee or Aberdeen, it's really tiny figures. So as a measurement of the vitality of artistic practice or the diversity of artistic practice in the country, we're not really there yet. In SCAN's 2015 survey of visual arts in Scotland, they found that 40% of artists practiced film or video in some capacity, which is obviously not reflected 
to the same extent in collections. So I, I think there's movement towards that. And of course, we have to think about the material context of this work. It's hard to collect film or video. It's expensive. It doesn't fit the mold of buying paintings or sculptures. There are problems with the editioning of film or video or the way in which it circulates through distribution mechanisms. So there's all kind of concerns there to think about and none of that's fully reconciled yet. So we haven't really worked out how to properly finance and properly preserve this work, which I think is the challenge now. Particularly, I think we've seen in the past couple of years is we've had to move everything onto screens, how vital and, and useful film and video has been. You know, it's, it's become a huge proportion of organisations programming because you can stick it online yeah. always depending on the artist <laughs> yeah well I guess and there is something to seeing things in scale and in installation yeah as well and I suppose that's been a big consideration of moving image work that we've acquired in conversations with artists so we now have an AV conservator audiovisual conservator who is also our AV technician mm-hmm. and we're developing our processes for collection and conservation and long-term care of AV. Well, you're talking about Roddy's work, which came in 2003, that was on VHS. And so how that's digitized and preserved and shown again, what we ask artists for now in terms of master copies and submasters, and we only ever show display copies, which are then destroyed after they've been shown as well so yeah I mean Malcolm can speak to this I'm sure but the problem of preservation particularly you know with older work it's a nightmare things on Umatic or Betamax Um, or all these obsolete formats is a real struggle and I think you see that especially if we kind of do an analysis of the collections across Scotland there's a real dearth of stuff from the 80s from the early 90s that that just follows the technical problems I think but yeah yeah. I mean There have been huge projects to interrogate that and to stem the tide of loss. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Rewind in Dundee, which is is an ongoing um, project, but started in 2004. And they've looked to preserve probably now hundreds of video works from the 70s and 80s, but they don't have a Scotland-specific remit. So they very much work within a certain faction of video practice, which we might describe as more formalist-leaning or structuralist, um, if you want to use DD jargon. So I think, you know, there's an endemic problem, particularly in the country such as ours, where there isn't really much of an art market or a local art market. So the archives and work of artists is generally at their own behest. They kind of have to look after these things themselves. And I just know that there are so many tapes across the country in drawers, even early digital formats that now feel a bit shonky or or too small or too low res. And the effort required to properly preserve these is really it's out with the capacity that any institution has. Maybe one day we'll see a a proper revision of all this stuff. It's an ongoing battle and it's an expensive and costly endeavour too. So yeah, I would also urge artists to always think about that and embedding ideas of preservation within their production of work and thinking about how this can live on, particularly backing up things. (laughs) Uh, As I have been known to lose vast quantities of work in writing and and whatever. I think we've all been there. 
And it just made me think of another artist duo, Stansfield Hoikias, that Malcolm, you've worked with again, and we acquired work from them in 2016 from their Third Eye project. And the name escapes me because I didn't look it up before this meeting. But again, the film piece from that had been lost because it hadn't been thought to preserve it or in any other way. So we've got the photographic documentation that was actually in the space, but the core of it that was a cutting edge aspect of their work in the 1970s the video we don't have yeah it would seem to be lost to us now madeline pike has spent many years in the hope of finding it and it would turn up but it's gone but the journey that madeline has gone through is very illustrative of some of the issues some of the obstacles that marcus is talking about there in terms of technologies and their preservation the rewind project of course stansfield and hoikus were a part of that and there's a very good interview with them there's a raft of interviews on the rewind archive that's really quite a good very good resource in actual fact and rewind help not only to digitise a lot of existing work in one-inch video and such like, but also help to reconstruct some of these original installations as part of a great interest, I think, in a UK-wide level of showing installation-based work in their original format, as if it were not difficult enough. It is a kind of fascinating thing about how you do all of that and you retain the essence of the work as to how it was created for an audience to encounter it. The added issue to that is is the pace at which technology accelerates in terms of the digital formats that things are archived onto. So, you know, there was one point where Umatic was the most reliable of tape mediums well before the digital. And then there's been various digital incarnations onto which work which has been collected and then archived, then after several years, it has to migrate to a newer digital system, which runs the risk of its own inbuilt obsolescence. So I don't think there's a point at which any institution or collection will arrive at the perfect model for it, but it must continue to adapt while retaining something of the core work in the process, if that makes any sense at all. But Stansfield and Hikers, their their work is very important thematically. All of its ecological themes, the poetic approach, the fact that it brought together a Scottish artist and a European artist and they were real pioneers in their day, right up until Elsa died in 2004, I think it was. But Madeline continued with their oeuvre of practice, if you like. They did undertake a residency in Dundee as well in the early days of Rewind. And it's terrific that you have acquired that static work from their first installation that presented in in Scotland at the Third Eye Centre at the time, which was called What's It To You? It was a good example of an interactive artwork, if you like, which caught people on video walking in the street. People could record themselves. There was a, a, a number of different elements to it that gave it quite a resonance in terms of the different qualities that it had, its accessibility. So if you were an artist, you would you could appreciate its artistic qualities. You know, as a passerby, you would be enticed by the technology, the fact you could see yourself on the screen. There was a lot of things going on with that work. I think it is cited 
as being the first, although it was multimedia, the first video installation of its kind in Scotland. And that was 1975. It was staged at the Third Eye Centre, which was the year before video towards defining an aesthetic, which was a big video installation show that brought these kind of cornerstones of the London video art aesthetic to Scotland. And Steve Patridge, as a young artist at the time, was very much involved in that. And Lindsay Gordon as the arts officer at the Scottish Arts Council. David Hall was involved in that. And Tamara Krikorian. It's one of the landmark exhibitions of its time. Yeah, Tamara Krikorian was the only Scottish resident in that show. She also curated it. But yeah, it was very much an interesting history of, of things coming in. But it raises problems around, you know, so much of the value of these early shows was in the novelty because they were using closed circuit technologies where you could see yourself. And, and that was completely novel, that idea that a person in the public can see their own image on, on a television screen. So to recapture that, represent it, especially with what's it to you, it's kind of an impossible task because we don't have the same interface with screens as we used to. So a key component of the work is no longer feelable. So there's so many conceptual concerns with the representation of film and video, and it, and it bears a lot of similarity with performance and issues of collecting performance too. But I think they're good challenges, and, and these are really interesting conversations we can have whilst you know many of these artists are still living, but the, the clock is ticking on that for some, about how do we migrate forward and, and what is the essence of the work that needs to be preserved. Malcolm, you touched on this, of using you know archival display equipment and these things are faulting and, and to get a CRT screen is increasingly difficult and expensive and we really have to reconsider these kind of apparatical relations in work and how essential those are and I think it's an interesting question for film and video because you have different attitudes towards this. There's Ubu Web which is a kind of video art piracy service and their ethic is the most important thing is that these things are shown regardless regardless of quality, regardless of consent. And that's a very extreme position to take. But you know, if you don't do that, will it ever be seen again is another question. So yeah, I think preservation is an ongoing question. And I do wonder the extent to which collections today, which quite rightly are prioritising generating income for living artists, how they might deal with this work, which is older, because there are real gaps in, in collecting, I think, particularly in, in the kind of 80s, 90s, where restoration projects haven't taken place yet. And you've got all kinds of formats like Laserdisc, beta tape, Umatic, and I wouldn't know how to deal with any of that. <laughs> so yeah, there needs to be specialists and there needs, to, there needs to be people who can bring this stuff forward. It's an interesting challenge and a productive one. And I think one that can be sort of done publicly and performatively and can involve a, a, an openness to that dialogue. I think you're right. I think there is a, a huge gap round about the 80s and the 90s for swathes of practice. I think that would be a very interesting prospect to find a way to try and bring that together with all the sources of intelligence for those who have done research in it and to bring it all together somehow to start chipping away at it. Because whilst Rewind is very important, as you say, Marcus, and as we know it, it is what it was. It was a bit British video art and the video art aesthetic. It didn't really touch upon the way lots of visual artists use film and video and indeed uh, new media and those who are specifically based within Scotland as well. It was a very kind of exciting time, those two decades, with the work that was going on across different sectors, with the video workshops that were, were happening all over the place as well. So there's a lot of work to be done on that. 
in addition to the research that you're looking into, Marcus, as well. So, yeah, the more that that can feed into the potential of what collections might take forward, then the better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex context that Goma enters into in 1996. Specifically, I think that's a really interesting time for this stuff to generalise, which I don't really like to do. But by the end of the 80s, there was a sense that film and video had started to consolidate or there were spoke platforms that you were involved with, Malcolm, in event space and then laterally new visions. But there were starting to be germinations of this kind of thing in, in other sectors. So a really important scheme at this time was first reels which was run by the Scottish Film Council and then laterally Scottish Screen and that ran 1991 to 1999 and a lot of artists were involved in that and that was a key kind of commissioning activity. People like Mandy McIntosh, Gillian Steele, Sarah Tripp were all beneficiaries of that scheme and a lot of that work although it's very good, is untethered now and doesn't necessarily have a home. And it's because there was a problem or maybe a a gap in between the art and the film sectors and and this thing that is artists, film and video or moving image or whatever you want to carve it up as, was unable to sort of work or understand this material. I think another key point in the infrastructure at that point is that in 1994, the Arts Councils were devolved slightly by force. It happened after a funding crisis. And so the Scottish Arts Council became independent and autonomous, separate to the Arts Council of Great Britain, which then was rebranded Arts Council England. And at that point, it was like some things were cut off at the knees and and resources which had been really key to Scottish artists, particularly with equipment. There was a scheme in Liverpool called MITES, M-A-I-T-E-S, where artists would borrow equipment to record, to, to make work, but also to show work. So galleries would rely on these projectors and apparatus like that when it was not easy to, to track down. So in 1994, there was a break that happened and it suddenly became quite difficult to get your hands on anything. And Scotland hadn't been able to build up its own bank of stuff to make work. So there are key kind of moments in this time which are giving quite a particular and local shape to moving image production in Scotland. And another key agent in that is Tramway, which opened in 1990 with the City of Culture year, although it had been operating slightly earlier than that. But Tramway got into the habit of showing work that we might now describe as the new cinematic aesthetic. People like Douglas Gordon, of course, 24-hour cycle in 1993, which was the projection writ large. It was a kind of new type of film and video art that was very sensational. After that, there was Vitopia in 1994, which was a really key exhibition grappling with the idea of the virtual, the new sort of possibilities of the internet. There was an internet cafe as part of that exhibition. And ideas of voyeurism, interactivity, these were all starting to enter the kind of artist lexicon. But as the grappling with technology sort of progresses, you wonder what do we do with this history now? Because a lot of it was very kind of rudimentary and it was quite early and these technologies are no longer accessible. So yeah, it's a a complicated matter. And I think Goma arrives at this time when all the consolidation that had happened in the 80s starts to fragment again. And there's a a bit of a crisis happening. The last New Visions Festival was in 1996 too. So we enter in, as we get closer to the millennium, a bit of a confusion, I think. Certainly in things like public subsidy, there was no bespoke scheme to fund artists moving image the money that had been available from the film sector was increasingly being siphoned towards more commercial output short filmmaking in the traditional sense as i'm 
platform for feature filmmaking or film and TV. So it felt, I think, maybe to, to many artists as those things were starting to dry up. In the early 2000s, there's a, a big review of the visual arts sector. And, and following that, there's a, a video bursary that starts up and that, that really changes the game. And I think there are massive benefits to that, you know, up to 15K for year-long practices. People like uh, Duncan Campbell benefit from that with works like Bernadette. But when Goma's arriving, it's confusing. It's a real crisis point, I think, for video. And you can see that in, in things like the CD gallery, which is a bit of everything. We don't really know what to do with it. And these things are so ephemeral that so much of it is just lost. And I think there has to be a little bit of acceptance in there that we can't necessarily recover any or much of that work, really. I think uh, there was a lot of things that were stymied around about that time as well. I mean, you mentioned mates and, and fact were initiatives that we were very much aware of at the time, but there was a big feasibility undertaking looking into an equipment bank for Scottish artists itself to service that increased wave of interest around about working with video specifically. And, you know, it took, took a bit of time, but for some reason it was not taken up and resourced. Uh, there was many meetings had about it, it must be said, but ultimately it was the decision of the Scottish Arts Council at the time. And there was other things going down that meant that funding priorities did not push that up alongside other particular priorities that were happening. So it was a bit unfortunate that, because that would have serviced and assisted practitioners in a way that may have led to more work being made, but it is, it, it is what it was. So, you know, there's no point in complaining. I do remember uh, Vtopia, Steve Bode was involved in that, I think, as a curator. So there's a lot of connections with the film and video umbrella, LVA, and these different organisations that supported artists through the moving image. And the film and video umbrella is quite interesting how it kind of moved from really specifically film and video art to working more with artists who might be considered to be visual artists. So the, the kind of the palette was kind of extended somewhat. It was very much symptomatic of the way things were going anyway. Yeah, I just thought I'd get a mention in there of the potential of the Scottish mates that was not to be, but the equipment side of it. Yeah, I mean, it's like mates used to run courses to which, you know, curators and gallery people used to go. And it was as basic as how to switch on a video machine. How do you play this work? What connects and all the rest of it? It was all very kind of basic. That kind of takes us to infinitude to some degree. I'm going to ask about that because, you know, when yeah. Marcus was talking, I was remembering that the show that you curated at GOMA was in the tail end of the yeah. 1990s and 2000s, but also in the midst of when you were saying there was not that much resource. Or yeah. scope around for artists. That's right, but there's still an immense interest in it in the sector of practitioners and in some of the writing that was coming out of the practice at the time. It was at a kind of infrastructural level that it was all fairly kind of dissipated. But after the Scottish Mates feasibility came to an end or was not followed up, the Scottish Arts Council set some funding aside for New Media Scotland as an organisation devoted to this burgeoning area of new media practice, which encompassed film, video and everything that happened thereafter in terms of new technologies. That had come out of the Moving Image Art Agency, it was temporarily called, which was a coming together of new visions in the Fringe Film and Video Festival. 
which were forced into this marriage in order to stop the two festivals in Glasgow and Edinburgh continually going back to the funding bodies and saying, give us another thousand pounds and we'll do this big festival. Um, so there was, New Media Scotland was seen to be, to some degree, a panacea and to consolidate all of those practices from a Scottish vantage point. One of the early commissions was a series of digital art commissions and short moving, moving image ones. And, and I was really startling reminded of them again when Marcus was talking about the fact that there's so much work was produced in the 90s that's not, it's not archived anywhere. You know, where do you go to find out what was produced or indeed go to see it? So there was got a lot of kind of good work produced at that time. But Infinitude came about an invitation of, at that time, it was Victoria Halls and Sean McGlashan at Gallery Modern Art who had invited myself to curate an exhibition in the Fire Gallery. Now, I think there was an aspiration at that time in Glasgow museums or in Goma specifically to turn the Fire Gallery into a kind of new media gallery, which was really an exciting prospect at the time. That was just a couple of years after the opening as well of ZKM, the new media museum in Karlsruhe in Germany. And I remember going to the opening of that and Julia Fenby, who'd previously been at Goma, was there. I mean, all the people in the sector went to that. So the prospect of a civic museum pioneering this work through a gallery space was obviously obviously was very enticing prospect indeed. But the first demonstration of that, I suppose, was a temporary exhibition, which was Infinitude. That brought together a lot of different artists working, I mean, in a variety of ways and a kind of very nebulously dealing with themes of time and experience. But the whole prospect was to create this really immersive environment that embraced this range of approaches. So you had video projection, you had video installation, light works, digital painting, photography, interactive and computer-based artworks. So it tried to bring all of these elements and put them all into one big pot, if you like, a general thematic, but one that was driven by fairly interesting concerns round about the experiential, shall we say, hence the decision to call it Infinitude. So it included work by Dale and Scullion, a large-scale video projection in the main space of the Fire Gallery. Daniel Reeves had a video triptych called Try to Live to See This. That was probably one of the more problematic works that I'll come back to in a minute. Threshold was an LED work by Stephen Hurrell that was situated at the entrance and another aspect you would see on exiting that particular space. Steve Hollingsworth had two time-based sculptures, an ice chair and a light chair. Beverly Hood had a web-based artwork that was shown in a screen. Stephen Healy had an interactive photographic installation that involved a Polaroid camera. It was all set up in a corner or booth-like kind of structure. So the visitor could take a photograph of themselves and through a remote timer. The Polaroid would come out and fall into this bath of, of water. It was a very kind of engrossing type of, of work. Who else was there? Pernilla Spence and John Scott did a piece which kind of reconstructed the painting of Rodin called The Kiss. 
to go back to the Daniel Reeves installation, now it was originally planned that it would be shown on plasma screens, which were new presentation technologies at the time. And no artist, as far as we recall, had shown work on plasma screens at the time. But Daniel, being the American artist that he is, although he was based in Glasgow, wanted the best in the state of the art. And we searched high and low right across the UK to try and source these plasma screens for his work, but could not find them. Eventually settled on what's a equally beautiful presentation, as it happens now, is the Sony Cube monitors, which are very difficult to source now. And the work was shown using pneumatic tape with a sync starter. And there was only two pneumatic sync starters in the whole of the UK at the time. And that's what artists used to show their installation work. So again, we were really challenged by what we were trying to do through that show in terms of the technology, in terms of matching the presentation methods to what the artists wanted to do. So there was a kind of dual pushing of the parameters at the time with infinitude. A lot of it's like, uh, all sounds rather old hat now, but I think it was pretty ahead in terms of what it curatorially did and what the Gallery of Modern Art wanted that exhibition to do. Now, it so happened that the Fire Gallery anyway was then transformed back into the Stirling Library, which it remains now. So the prospect of it being uh, an ongoing space for new media artworks was forfeited by the public function of the library. So that I was think that. At the time, there was still a desire because when I started, there was some computer kit that we had that Beagles and Ramsey seemed to be involved in. Yeah. designing some kind of a digital space that would be available within the library for the public. But I don't think it ever kind of happened in the way that it had been envisioned or talked about. Yeah, yeah. I may be speaking slightly out of turn in terms of how I have interpreted that. I think it would have taken a huge amount of resources to have retained that space as a new media gallery, that's for sure. But I guess it was a test and still a tempting prospect to think about how such a thing could, in actual fact, work where you could present the moving image and video-based works from a collection in an ongoing basis, which isn't reusing that original stock somehow. Anyway, that's, that's another aspect of the challenge that Mark has touched upon earlier on. Yeah, I think there's something very specific about that time Exactly. That's quite interesting in terms of provision for space, even just social space, because between 1998 and 2001-ish, both the CCA and Tramway were closed because they were getting refurbished with National Lottery funding. So as the two sort of main social spaces for the arts community, those were sort of taken away briefly and they had off-site projects, but it's not the same as somewhere to congregate and show work. And I think much of that would have precipitated or quickened this the sort of DIY turn that was also running alongside this and the sort of habit of showing work at home or in studio spaces or in pubs. And this all kind of clashes with the increasing affordability of technology. And by the early 2000s, these things are sort of resolved because you can actually get a projector without blowing the bank. You know, these things start to be able to be made at home. You can use a laptop, although a pretty rudimentary one to make work. And so some of these tensions that had made the sort of mid to late 90s a really tricky time 
were starting to be tied up just by progress. So it's interesting to think about the potentiality of what that new media gallery could have been, because I think there was a real desire there whilst the other kind of civic spaces were not there for something like that. And yet very much the DIY turn as well suppresses all that history and that archive, because even less than the galleries we have, these things are, are not written into history and will elude anyone who wasn't there. So yeah, a very interesting time. And it's all pre-digital too. So or pre, pre-internet as it is used now. So these things aren't traceable through web or through communications anyway. And I think they are ongoing conversations for us now about spaces to show work because we're acutely aware that as artists' parameters or intentions around their work, particularly moving an image or installation, which includes moving image elements, that our spaces never quite work so they always present challenges for that so what a flexible space to show you know even as a curator I can't just see the moving image works we have in the collection I have to arrange with our AV conservator and technician to go and watch it on a monitor which is not necessarily thinking about something two-channel video it's I can only watch one element of that at a time so those spaces for seeing our collection it's still not there so it's therefore an ongoing conversation. I was going to lead on to my final question, aware that we've been chatting probably a lot longer than we intended, because this is for Goma at 25. What ideals or hopes do you have for the city's modern contemporary art museum in the future? Yeah, I, I can I can speak to that, I guess. Recalling my own experience and my tentative introduction to the art world, I would really be an advocate for that function and and for the museum being maybe the best interface we have as arts workers for dealing with a a wide public, especially the moving image, which still has a habit of being ghettoised or siphoned off or or think thought of as specialty or a kind of more complex art. Goma has all the potential to aid that and to be the midwife of this encounter, I think. And I would always argue as well that moving image is actually one of the most legible forms of of art we have at the moment, because if you can watch TV, in my opinion, you can watch a moving image work and you, you don't need any more specialist language than that to enjoy something. Whereas, you know, a painting, you might need to have some education around painting and its history and its traditions. Moving image is immediate and the feelings that you feel when you have that encounter are authentic and genuine. And I think it's a really great way for artists to get ideas across in, in a very direct way. So yeah, I think having that interface in the city is really important and that it continues to be a way for people to access radical ideas about themselves, about society, about the world. There's something in there about specificity and and locality that's really important to me too, that Goma can help do. I think especially in recent years, there's been some anxiety about places like the People's Palace or, or the Winter Gardens, which are now gone, as these quite rare gems that champion this very specific working class local history. And I think there's a real space that's maybe not being taken advantage of fully by artists and the people who show art, but a real space there to deal with the specificity of where we are, the histories of this place, the histories of industry and post-industry and class and all the complexity that Glasgow embeds within an art art context. So yeah, I, I would love to see further interrogation of that. Specifically, I think as people are starting to become a little bit disaffected by the dream of globalization or by the dream of internationalization and producing work 
or exhibitions that think that they have to speak to the entire world. When maybe, you know, in this pandemic era, we've started to learn a bit more about the importance of the connections around us and, and the locality of that and the specificity of that. And I think artists have already started to pick up on this. So it's who, who are we making work for? And if the answer is your friends, that's perfectly fine. We don't need to be making work for, you know, the biennial circuit for some imagined collector who's based in London. I think very much being rooted in Glasgow is, is something that I, I really like to see. And Coma is the perfect site for that. Yeah, good answer, Marcus. It's a big question, that, Katie. What's important, I think, is how Goma intersects and is part of an infrastructure within the city of facilitators and cultural producers. And partnerships and collaborations are central to that. We don't want a situation which is steadily happening with large institutions is that they're becoming a bit more siloed while you know they're in retreat as people have to preserve and, and look after what they have a difficult time of austerity and, and, and further cuts but a place like Goma right I mean it's a civic space it's a kind of custodian which talks to all the audiences that Marcus is alluded to, not alluded to, is specified. And that is an exciting prospect in actual fact, because what can speak to the person who wanders in from the street is the same work that speaks to the artist who's been trained in the same language as what the artist says. I mean, I, I believe that very much, that there's a common sense at work in what we all understand. I think there's an inclusivity that has to be embraced in a civic institution such as that such as Goma, there's an adventurousness. You have to be able to take risks as well, and that risk might be not pleasing all of the people all of the time. And one of the challenges of doing that is that it needs its champions who are public-facing spokespeople for the large institution. But things are not moving in a good direction in the broader framework of things at the moment. But it is one that we can, we can claim back because there's a lot of cultural assets in the city and, you know, Goma does have a role in assisting that process. Yeah, it's that local and international thing. It's always of great interest, I think, that there has to be work embraced that does speak of our time and of our place, which also speaks at an international level as well. So it's that Tom Leonard thing, isn't it? The local is the international the national is the parochial. You know, there's a lot of complexity uh, and nuances within that very short statement that um, makes what we all have to do in the years to come quite a challenge, but a good one. You know, I think the partnership aspect is very important for us to kind of celebrate the infrastructure that, that does exist in the city. And with Goma at the the kind of pinnacle of that as the civic institution with this amazing collection. A lot of that collection is still to be shared with the public. And then in five years' time, it will be seen by another public, you know, so, yeah. Thank you both so much for the conversation today and also reminders about what GOMA's for. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode of the Glasgow Museum's podcast. If you've enjoyed and want to hear more, you can find more episodes available on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts and on SoundCloud too. 
just look out for Glasgow Museums. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>